Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3 this morning, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. And this morning we're going to begin a multi-week look at this chapter, chapter 3, which is full of glorious truth, amazing things concerning God and His dealings with His covenant people. Uh, this chapter sets the tone, really, for much of the rest of the Bible. And I know I've said that before, but that's because the book of Exodus is filled with so many of these glimpses into the character of God and His covenant-keeping nature. It builds on a lot that we've learned from Genesis. We'll hear references to Genesis in our text. Uh, God's relationship with the patriarchs, His love for His people, His covenant, the mighty work of His right arm, and even how He uses unlikely situations and unlikely people for His glory. But this chapter, as you'll discover as we read through it here in a moment, <clears throat> has far too much in it to address in one week, or probably two and so what we'll do today is we'll look at this chapter from an angle, and then next week from a different angle, and then probably the following week wrapping up all the other angles. So this won't be so much verses 1 through 6, and then 7 through 12, and then 13 through the end, as it will be us moving around Exodus 3 over the coming weeks to mine it for all that it's worth. Well, let's read Exodus 3 in its entirety, but before we do, we'll pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, because we certainly need His help, don't we? <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning humble and aware of our need for the illuminating presence of Your Spirit in our hearts. We ask that You would send Him to us, that He would open our eyes, that we might behold the amazing things concerning Your Son contained in Your Word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Please take heed how you hear it. <clears throat> now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the mountain and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was not burning. Excuse me, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, 
the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God or worship God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, who am I? Not who do people think that I am, although there's probably something worth learning in that answer, but who am I really? Who am I? I once had a young boy in a church say to me, I wonder why I'm me. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, why am I me? Why am I who I am? Why do I think like I do? Could God have made me someone different And if he had, would I still be me? Now, this young boy wasn't asking out of disappointment with who he was, uh, nor out of a desire to simply be someone else. He was just contemplating his own existence. And I imagine that most of us would do well to ask those sorts of deep questions of ourselves from time to time. Often, I suspect we simply plod on through life uh, without ever considering who we are, or perhaps more importantly, what God is doing with me. The truth is, God uses every moment of our lives, every triumph, every defeat, 
every unique character trait, every weakness, every love, every relationship, even every dislike to shape us into the person he intends to use for his glory and our good and the benefit of his people. And perhaps you've concluded that you are simply an amalgamation of all of your life's individual moments. And there's some truth to that. But the Christian view, what the Bible teaches us, is that we're not simply an amalgamation of random moments in our lives, but moments that have been been sovereignly superintended by a God who works all things according to his wise counsel and perfect purpose. Do you know that God not only can but does redeem even the worst and the hardest moments in your lives in order to shape you, to equip you into who he intends for you to be for the next moment in your life? Even the sort of moments that we couldn't even imagine right now but could happen this afternoon. This morning, I want us to consider who we are and how God uses our present circumstances to prepare us for work in His glorious kingdom. And the angle we're going to take at Exodus 3 this morning is the Moses angle. And so we're going to be dealing primarily with Moses and his interactions with God, uh, leaving aside the questions about God specifically in this case, as we'll look at that more next week. But from Moses' story, I want us to answer, or to see, I should say, three things. Number one, God often prepares us far differently than we would expect. God often prepares us far differently than we would expect. Secondly, God often prepares us for longer than we'd like. God often prepares us for longer than we'd like. And lastly, God often uses our perceived weaknesses to magnify his own glory. Well, in verse 1, we find Moses living in the desert, keeping watch over his father-in-law's flock. We see Moses was keeping the flock of Jethro, the priest of Midian. And there's two things worth noting here. One of them is a little less significant, and I'll tell you that one first. Uh, But it is important, especially for our younger folks in the church to be thinking about. Uh, Moses is waiting for whatever is next in life. He's been here for a while. We'll come to that later. He's simply tending a flock of sheep, and he's waiting to see what God might do. But while he's waiting, Moses is working hard. While he's waiting to see what God will do next with him, next through him, next to him, Moses is busy working hard. Now, you may not know this, but shepherding is not easy especially in the wilderness. I need to now quickly disabuse you of the image that you have in your head of some kindly older gentleman smoking a pipe, wearing a tweed jacket and a flat cap, gently moving a flock of sheep over some green hill in Scotland somewhere. Shepherding in Scotland could not be easier, I imagine. There's more green in one square inch of Scotland than there is in every golf course in America combined. It would be impossible to be a bad shepherd in Scotland, I, I assume. Don't, if you know one, don't tell him I said that. But if that's the image you have of a shepherd, some kindly gentleman puffing on a pipe and gently moving them over the little, the green glen towards the river, uh, that's not what we should be envisioning here. Instead, Moses is in the wilderness, in the desert. Picture a sun-beaten, grizzled old man with sweat-soaked garments moving his sheep for days at a time to find a little food and water. That's the work God has given him to do, not 
the cool breeze from the, the island seas and, and uh, the green grasses of Scotland. This is what Moses is doing as he's waiting for whatever's next. He's working hard, and the lesson is simply this. Laziness is antithetical to Christianity. Laziness goes against what we believe about a biblical worldview and a reformed understanding of vocation and work. As we wait for God, as we wait for God for whatever's next, He expects for us to be exercising dominion over the earth, to be pursuing righteousness in our lives, to be living in fellowship with other believers, and to be working hard with whatever capacity He's given us. If you're a young person as a student in school, you should be working hard in school as students right now in order to be prepared well for whatever stage is next in your life. If you're a mom homeschooling your children and getting up in the early hours to work on your Latin paradigms to teach your kids and math problems to prepare your children, work hard at that even though one day your children will grow up and leave the home. If you're in the middle part of your life and you have a vocation God has given you, work hard that you might fulfill the mandate God has given you to reflect His image as a hard-working God. Jesus says, the Father's been working from the beginning and still is, and I'm doing the same thing as He is. How dare then we not be hard-working Christians? Laziness is antithetical to biblical Christianity. Moses was no lazy man, and he would need this work ethic, this character trait, for what he's about to be called to do. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I know that when I say something like this, everyone is on alert that I'm about to deny what I said. I love the ESV translation, but in this case, there's a big swing and a miss in verse 1. Big swing and a miss. Uh, The old translations, if you've got a King James or a New King James with you, far better in this case. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness to the Mount of Horeb, the mountain of God. The word west there kind of implies that the main point here is about cardinal direction. Like Moses was over on the east, and then he thought, oh, I'll go over to the west. Maybe there's food over there. That is not the point. That is, and he may have gone west, uh, but the word that's used here and that the older translations apply is that he was on the backside of the wilderness. The backside of the wilderness when he came to Horeb. It's not really about geography. It's about where Moses was in his life. He was in the backside of the wilderness. This place, the backside of the wilderness, is an important place to be. For Moses, there was nothing farther from the school of Egypt than the school of the wilderness. And yet it was here that he was being prepared far differently than we might expect. Moses, you see, was being called to be the leader of the nation of Israel, to lead them out, to corral millions of people, to lead over armies, to judge with equity, what better place could he have gone to school than in Pharaoh's home, in the school of Egypt? It probably would have served him really well to spend a few years as Pharaoh. Why didn't God show up to Moses as a burning plant in Pharaoh's palace 40 years in the future after he had a little bit of leadership experience in the, in the corporate world? Rather, God drives him out of there into the wilderness and then appears to him when he's ready. 
That's fascinating that Moses is prepared in an unlikely spot in the school of the wilderness. A.W. Pink says this, the backside of the wilderness is where men and things, the world and self, present circumstances and their influences are all valued at what they are really worth. There it is and there alone you will find a divinely adjusted balance in which to weigh all within and all around. The bustle and confusion of Egypt do not fall upon the ear in that distant place. The crash of the monetary and commercial world is not heard there. The thirst for gold is not felt in the wilderness. The eye is never dimmed with lust, nor the heart swollen with pride. Human applause does not elate us on the backside of the wilderness. In a word, everything is set aside, save the stillness and light of the divine presence. God's voice alone is heard in the backside of the wilderness. His light alone is enjoyed in the backside of the wilderness. His thoughts are received there. And this is the place to which all must go. Do you long for a wilderness experience in your life? Or are you, frankly, really afraid of what it might look like? of being taken to the other side, away from all the comforts and ease of Egypt, away from all the pleasures, away from all of the, uh, of the authority and the power that he would have had in Egypt, are you rather convinced that worldly success is what will best equip you from ki- for kingdom work if you even have a concept of kingdom work at all? Moses was taken to the wilderness Many of us, I suspect, simply want to get on with life, to live a life of relative ease, avoid the wilderness at all costs, and then fly away to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Yet the wilderness is the place where God calls and equips His people for the work that they will do for Him, for His glory. Moses went there. He left the shiny cities. He left the palace. He left the pleasure of a royal life, the place where we would have expected for Him to be trained. And rather, he went and tended sheep on the backside of the wilderness. Not even the front side of the wilderness. If he had been on the front side of the wilderness, he'd been close enough to see the lights of Egypt in the distance. And they still would have had a pull on his heart, that gravitational tug as he cast his eye in the distance. Oh, I remember. I know what's happening over there. I remember when they built that pyramid. And his eyes and his heart would have been set in the past, set in Egypt. God took him to the backside of the wilderness where the lights of Egypt didn't even reach him. My friends, are you willing to go to the far place to be with God? Far away from the world and all that it has to offer? Far away from the lusts of this world and the sinful pride of life and the desires of the flesh? forsake it all, let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the song says, that we might know God and be prepared by Him, for Him, for His glory. Or do you fight against it? Do you anchor your feet in Egypt because it's comfortable there? Because it's easy there? I'm sure you hear in these opening verses the experience of our Savior how he himself was driven into the wilderness to be tempted in the school of suffering. 
Jesus himself uh, learned to rely totally on the Word of God in the wilderness. Don't miss this, and we'll come to this in our evening service in a few weeks. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, almost exclusively, the only words that come out of his mouth are direct quotes from Scripture. Jesus learned in the school of suffering that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Moses is here in the wilderness learning to be attentive and sensitive to the word that comes from God and to obey it. If our Savior went into the wilderness to suffer, to forsake what the world has to offer and lay hold of God and his word in that place, do we find ourselves above that? Do we think that suffering is for other people? Or do we trust God and desire that we might too experience the wilderness like him? God needed to reinvent Moses. Because in actuality, while he did lead the people of Israel, his primary job was to shepherd them. And so he needed to be reinvented from an Egyptian leader to a humble shepherd. And often God reinvents us for his kingdom in ways that appear foolish to those who are judging simply according to the flesh. How about you? Are you joyful at the prospect of going to the backside of the wilderness with God? Are you fighting against the school of suffering, not realizing the wonderful things God could do in you and through you because of that time? Well, Moses not only gets prepared in this unexpected way, he's in the school of suffering in the wilderness, but he's there for a really long time. When the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, uh, it doesn't tell us, it simply says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. So much is contained in that little word now, and we've mentioned this, so I'll be very brief here, but if we were to jump ahead to Acts chapter 7, we would find Stephen preaching his sermon right before his martyrdom, right before being stoned to death. And Stephen says that it was 40 years old when Moses in chapter 2 went to visit the Israelites, and then he fled to the wilderness, and then 40 more years passed before the Lord appeared to him in a bush. He's 80. Moses is 80 now. It's been 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. That's a long time. 40 years in the desert. 40 years away from his people. 40 years, 80 years old, what patience it must have taken Moses to tend sheep and wait for the Lord for that long. Far too often, we want what we want, and we want it when? I want it now. You remember that little girl, Violet um, Beauregard was her name? She wanted it all. She wanted it her way, and she wanted it now, and look what it got her. She turned into a giant blueberry. But we're, we're in such a hurry, aren't we? We want everything we want now. We live in a culture that has, has changed us. If we want food, we can have it in minutes. 30 seconds in the microwave, two minutes in the line at McDonald's. If you want information, uh, just think with me for a second. You young folks here, young children who are in middle, middle school and high school right now, some of you college age, young people right now, and even some older than that, uh, I cannot begin to imagine the anxiety-induced migraine that you would experience if you were to try to understand the Dewey Decimal System. 
to have to go into a library filled with rows of books. They're, they're these paper things. They've got pages in them and stuff, information everywhere. Usually there's an index in the back to find information. I jest, but in reality, even myself, those of us who, have, who love going to the library, love reading books, know that the answers to all of my questions are found in a matter of seconds online. Everything we want, we have it right now. It's no wonder we're so impatient with God and His timing. It's no wonder we're so quick to stomp our feet and get frustrated that God is not moving at the pace we desire for Him to move. But we must remember that for the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. Moses needed these 40 years. God used each of these 40 years to prepare him for what was next. We are just too often in a hurry. It reminds me of the story of Augustine when he was first appointed to his post in Hippo as bishop. Uh, he realized very early on how ill-prepared he was for this task. He was a young convert, and so he wrote to his supervisor, a man named Valerius, to ask for some time off from the ministry to become better prepared, better equipped to tend to the flock. He likened his situation to being made a ship's captain without knowing how to handle an oar, he said. He wrote to Valerius and said, I was ordained at the very time where I was thinking about taking a season from all other occupations that I might acquaint myself with Scripture. That was what he was preparing to do when he was uh, uh, encouraged to go to Hippo to become the bishop there. And he says, perhaps you would reply, well, what is lacking to fit you for your office? He says, the things which I lack are so many, I could more easily enumerate the things that I have than those which I desire to learn. And how might this be done except as the Lord himself tells us, by asking, seeking, and knocking. Now listen, please. If you only remember one thing from this morning, remember these three words. As you patiently endure in the long school of suffering, you need these three words. Augustine says, how am I to learn what God would have me do without praying, reading, and weeping? And he asked for a season off from his ministry to do those three things. By praying, he means growing in his communion with God. Are you in the long school of suffering right now, like Moses was? like Augustine was? Are you in the school of cancer right now? Are you in the school of debilitating pain and chronic illness right now? Are you in the school of being a high school kid and waiting to graduate and spread your wings and leave home? Are you in the school of watching your children grow up and just anticipating them leaving the home so you can buy that Harley Davidson and park it in your garage? That was autobiographical. Are you in the season of your 50s and early 60s just waiting for retirement to come so you can finally go to the beach more often? Are you in the season of singleness, waiting for God to bring that person along to you if that's what he intends to do? Are you in the season of young marriage, waiting for children but not knowing if you're going to have any? Are you in the season of widowhood? Not knowing if you'll stay alone for the rest of your life or if you should pursue another relationship? Are you in a long school right now? You need to pray and deepen your relationship and communion with God. You need to read 
and spend time in His Word knowing more who He is and what promises He has made to you, irrevocable promises that cannot be broken. And you need to weep, and what Augustine meant was grieve over your own sin. And perhaps the sin is being impatient with the Lord, dissatisfied with the Lord, covetous of the people around you. You need to pray. You need to read. You need to weep. When we're in the long school of God, being prepared for what He has next for us, that's what we need. We don't need Him to act. We need to be changed. We need to be changed by God. Moses was changed from a royal son of Egypt to a sun-beaten old man in the desert tending sheep. Why? Because God intended him to tend his sheep in the desert. Who knows what God might do with your current affliction, your current circumstance? But have you not read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? All of the things that we've suffered, all the affliction we've received, all of the suffering we've suffered is for you. So that way the the comfort with which we're comforted, we can apply to your lives in your time of affliction. Your cancer is for someone else. Your miscarriage is for someone else. Your joblessness is for someone else. Your singleness is for someone else. Your difficult kids are for someone else. Your season in school is for someone else. Your young childless marriage is to benefit someone else because we are not cul-de-sacs of grace. We're conduits of grace. And God sends his mercy to us in our long school of suffering that it might flow through us and to other people in the church the same way he sends his gospel to us, not for us to receive it and tuck it away and hide it in our hearts, but that it might pass through us, through our words and through our actions and our lives of holiness, so other people in the world would see and receive the benefits of the reality of the risen Savior Jesus Christ as he is expressed through the lives of his people in this world. What are you suffering? What's your long school? Trust me, 40 years in the wilderness is tough. But God was preparing Moses, wasn't he? Because God often prepares us for a long time. Moses goes to the hard school of the wilderness. He goes to the long school of the wilderness. And don't miss this. He does not come out the other side a perfect man. He's full of weaknesses, full of excuses. Moses is not a perfect man on the backside of this. Look at verse 10 with me. Uh, I will back up to verse 9. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which they've been oppressed. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Verse 11. But Moses says, Whoa, I'm not the guy. I think you've misunderstood something here, Lord. I'm just a shepherd. You know they hate me back there. All of them do, the Egyptians and the Israelites. I'm not the guy. I'm not not important enough to go. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I, I can't even get an audience with Pharaoh. Moses' excuses start flowing like water. Verse 13, he says, well, what if I go? Okay, let's assume I go, and I come to the people, and they say, who sent you? I don't even have all the information, God. I mean, maybe if I had all the information. 
So God gives him his name. He says, all right, well, hold on. What if, turn to chapter 4, verse 1, what if it doesn't go well then? Okay, you've given me the information, and you've told me Pharaoh will listen, but, but what if it doesn't go well? Moses answered, they might not believe me. You hear these excuses? All of my weaknesses. I'm not important enough. I don't have all the information. I can't guarantee the outcome. And finally, he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, by the way, Lord, I've never been really eloquent, and even though you're talking to me from this burning bush, I'm still not very eloquent. I'm full of weaknesses, and they're all excuses to keep me back from obeying you, God. I'm not the guy. I'm not the lady. I'm not the child you need, Lord. Look at how unable I am. Look at how uneducated I am. Look at how simple I am and my life is. You want me to do what? You want me to do what? You want me to wait here in this season of my life for a long time? You want me to go there to that place and be that person? You want me to do what? I, I don't think I can. I'm afraid. What excuse is keeping you from following the Lord's will for your life? What perceived weakness do you have that you offer up to God as a sacrifice every time you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart to move towards Him, to obey Him, to give something up for Him, to go somewhere He wants you to go, to do something He wants you to do. What excuse do you have? Do you know what the greatest verse in this whole... Everybody loves verse 14. I am who I am. Oh, I love that verse. It's a great verse. You realize that up until Matthew 28, 19, this is the most important verse about who God is in the Bible. Do you know how I am who I am is translated in the New Testament? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that next week. But the best verse in Exodus chapter 3 is verse 12. Who am I, God? I'm too weak. I can't do this. And God said, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. What do you mean you can't? You don't know how to talk well? I made your mouth. You can't get into Pharaoh's house? He's beneath me. It might not go well? I control everything. And I'll be with you. I'll be with you, God says. What's your excuse? Do you remember Jesus' last words to his disciples in the book of Matthew? Are they any different than what God says to Moses here that he says to each one of you in Christ? Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The backside of the wilderness is where we feel like we're alone. We're never alone. God was there with Moses walking headlong into Egypt, into the heart of the enemy's camp, that's when you feel like you're all alone. We're not alone. God goes with us. We need our eyes open like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6, who sees the Syrian army encamped around the city and says, we're doomed, look at them all. And Elisha says, the ones with us are way more than the ones with them.
And he prays that God would open his eyes. And what does that servant see when his eyes are opened up? He sees the mountains covered with innumerable fiery chariots and horses from heaven. The army of God surrounding the Syrians. We're not alone. We're not. Our weaknesses don't inhibit God or prohibit God from accomplishing his purposes. Moses only saw himself as foolish, but God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Moses only saw his lack of eloquence, but God speaks perfectly and true. Moses thought he was weak, but God is almighty. And sometimes he uses our weaknesses to magnify his great glory. Perhaps you feel weak today, and that weakness you perceive leaves you thinking you can't be of much use in the kingdom of God. My friend, you could not be more mistaken. Elderly and sick, you have no idea what God can do with you. Young, still in school, not sure what's next, not sure where you're going to go to college, not sure what the Lord has in the future for you. You have no idea what God can do with you. Single, and it looks to everyone around you that what the Christian life is all about is getting married and having lots of children at a young age. Hey, you have no idea what God can do with you. Because he's with you. God's with us. One of the things I love about the book of Exodus is how it persistently drives our minds forward to Christ. Everything we just said about Moses, we see in the life of Christ. Moses goes out to the wilderness, as Christ does, to rely totally on the Lord. Moses is trained in an unexpected way. You know, Jesus was coming to effectively be laid as the cornerstone of uh, the Christian religion, and yet he was not brought up in the religious schools of Israel. He wasn't a Pharisee. On the surface, at least, it looks like the Apostle Paul had a far better preparation than Jesus did to be the Messiah, to be the ruler and, 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 and founder of a, the Christian religion. God trained Jesus in the school of carpentry, not religion. Why? Because his common life was going to be poured out for common people who need salvation. You know, it took him a long time, didn't it? 30 years Jesus lived in obscurity, hammering away at nails, fashioning wood, shaping rocks, whatever it is he was doing. 30 years, a long time for what appears to be a relatively short and from a human perspective speaking, unsuccessful ministry. 30 years in school, that's a long time. Three years of ministry. And yet God used that long time to prepare him for the perfect execution of those three years. And what else? Talk about weakness. God on a cross. In order 
to be used for our salvation, he had to be weakened in the form of a man. He had to be made like us. He took on our flesh. He was tired. He was hungry. He had an emotional life. He was sad. He cried. He loved all of those things. And eventually he died. What greater expression of weakness is there? And God used that weakness to accomplish our redemption. It was because he was made weak like us that his blood was poured out and his body was able to be broken that we might receive salvation in him alone. Are we above our Savior? Are we unwilling to let God magnify his glory in our weaknesses? Are we unwilling to spend a long time in obscurity and difficulty and loneliness that God might equip us for what he intends to do in our lives? Are we above going to the backside of the wilderness, away from the pleasures of this world, away from everything it has to offer, that we might hear God call us to himself? I hope we're not. That's what we see here in Moses. That's what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one who isn't prepared by God for work in his kingdom that doesn't go through the strange school, the long school, or the strong school of God. What about you? What about you this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your son. Help us to be thankful for our suffering. Give us patience as we wait your command. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.